The Matthew Green Podcast, reframing mental health with me, Matthew Green. What if the problems of the modern world aren't really about power, money, war or religion? What if they're rooted in our individual and collective experience of trauma? I'm on a mission to explore how a deeper understanding of trauma can not only help us to feel better, but point the way to solutions to the challenges threatening our very survival as a species. I've spent years experimenting with alternative approaches to mental health to help with my own periods of depression. And I launched the Matthew Green podcast to bring together the pioneering healers, visionaries, thinkers, and activists I encountered along the way. Through a unique and accessible series of global conversations, I hope this podcast will be a source of inspiration for anyone in search of a deeper understanding of themselves and a clearer view of what's really going on on the global stage. I'm delighted to welcome Sun Mayer, a true pioneer and thought leader in the field of equine therapy, uh, which in its simplest sense is working with horses to heal psychological trauma. But of course, there's a whole lot more to it than that, which we'll be hearing all about over the course of the next hour. Sun, you've got so many projects, I, I tend to lose track. Uh, but of course, the core is an organization you founded called I Feel, the International Foundation of Experiential Education Learning. I Feel now has three centers in England, one in Germany and one in Ireland, and the work is very much focused on the psychology of human behavior change, whether that's in leadership roles or relationships to healing deep symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And on that note, it's definitely worth acknowledging that Sun is qualified in every single evidence-based trauma protocol and also teaches equine therapy at degree and master's level. And that's what's really exciting about where your work's got to, isn't it? You're, you're now really serving as a bridge between worlds, building that foundation of academic research to bring the remarkable healing magic of horses into the mainstream and hopefully make it available to many, many more people in the future. Sun Mayer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I'm really sitting with the imagery right now of, of, of actually being a bridge of, over into many worlds. And um, I've never thought of myself like that before. And um, it actually, I think, describes my positioning as you say I, I have trouble keeping up with what I'm yeah, doing <laughs> exactly but, but that really does sit for me that's a lovely image well, well I'm glad to hear that the, the whole purpose of this podcast is to serve as a bridge or a bridge between bridges yes in, in that you and, and other guests are bridges between worlds both in 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 the very 3d sense of the term between academia and and the kind of less recognized forms of therapy but I see you as a bridge between the seen and the unseen as well. And we'll maybe come back to that later yeah. before we dive in deeper. Um, yeah. As always, I like to start by having a, a little self-indulgent trip down memory lane to think yeah. about how I first met my wonderful guests. And of course, we got to know each other while I was researching Aftershock, Aftershock uh, my book about soldiers and their families looking for new ways to heal from trauma. And I spent time at your farm, your previous farm, 
down in East Sussex near East Grinstead in, in the south of England where you I met your wonderful herd and I can recall the images of these horses now there was Lee, that wonderful I believe a white gelding is that the yes, correct term? We, we call him they're, they're greys but he's pure white yes is it okay he's a great even yeah, yeah. now I'm still struggling with the horse terminology the horse terminology he'd be happy to be called white yes he, he, unicorn he looks like a unicorn he does, yes exactly and there, there was a sort of magical almost luminosity around him I remember it's extraordinary um and Isis uh, and Jigsaw and and I I, I was I can remember now standing in that field and thinking, wow, what, a, what an extraordinary journey to be on, looking for these new ways of, of understanding and healing trauma and to be standing out in a field surrounded by horses, which wasn't anything like what I'd expected the journey to be like. Um, so I learned a huge amount. And of course, I write about our, the work we did together in the book. Um, and we'll come back to the, the work and the theory and the amazing transformational potential of, of the work you do with horses as, as we go through. But uh, I, can I just make a little, um, it's just really struck me uh, that I'm noticing I have an uncomfortableness with the word healing trauma. Huh. And just from our previous conversation, um, it's not so much about healing trauma because you know, when there's been a massive wounding, that will leave scars, it leaves its residue, yeah. it leaves, um, you know, and it's the, 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 the goal of healing something as huge as psychological, physical, emotional trauma, it's probably an impossible task. But from what we were talking about earlier, it's about sitting and being with. Wow. Probably, and it's only just come to me that actually the, the nature of the work that we as a human race is about sitting and being with something that is deeply uncomfortable without rushing to fix it or jump mm. out and distract. And I think this is where the horses are, uh, are so wonderful at helping us to stay with so something about self-regulation and the horses help us to regulate, to stay in a very uncomfortable place. So the only way to heal trauma, if there is such a possibility, mm. is actually to be with and if anyone who works with trauma survivors is le the, the role of our work, whether it's human development or it's actually to be with. And um, so thank you for helping me to really no, this, that. This is the goal of the, uh, of the space we're creating together here is to have a generative conversation where I hope that I certainly learn a lot as I go through these conversations. And that, that's a really... I think you've hit on hit upon something very profound as we're looking for what I think of as new ways to hold that trauma or to be with that trauma. Of course, some of them are very old, but at the same time, the way we approach it, the frame that we begin with will also to some extent determine the approach and our expectations. And it's important mm -hmm. to examine all of those assumptions. So that's a really, really key point. It's, it's interesting as well, I'm really struck as I think in and feel into it deep, more deeply, um, the significance of this is that our human condition is to uh, move away from what's uncomfortable, move away from, you know, watch another TV program, do some more alcohol, whatever we do, you know, and I'm as guilty as anyone as when it comes to TV and things like that. Um, so it's not about making perfections, but the idea of the word to heal means that we're going to get away from this terrible, yeah. terrible thing. But in fact, as we're all experiencing now, stuff, life, life, 
part of the condition of life is really, really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not about avoiding or moving away from, it's learning to be connected to all aspects of our life, the beautiful moments and the, what we might call the more challenging moments. But if we can be with those difficult, challenging moments, then there is a very serene beauty in those that we don't get to experience unless we learn to be with it. Yeah. And that is where the, the, that's the only way we can get this transformational change. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's something that's very hard for us as human beings to, to you know, we've lost that. We, we were born with it and all the native traditions know how to do that, to be with, but in our, in our technological busy human states, as we are in the 20th century or 21st century, we are, we, we want to shift away from that. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and we'll come. You've, we'll, we'll come back as we progress to that question of the bigger yeah. picture of how yeah. we can link these kinds of shifts that we are talking about at a personal level to the more collective societal level. Yeah. But before we, before we go there, perhaps you could tell me a little bit more about what drew you to working with trauma and how that drew you to working specifically with horses. And we'll, of course, go further in, in how, what equine therapy is and how it works in a few moments. But I'd be, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about, what you, what, what, about your journey into this field and why your whole life now is devoted to propagating this knowledge and this, this wisdom and, 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 and being this bridge to bring this, 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 I'm trying not to use the word healing now. <laughs> healing, let's, let's use it for now with the caveats, the yeah. healing yeah. power to, to more and more people in, yeah. in all of its complexity and messiness. Yeah. yeah. So yes, gosh, where do I start? Well, probably it's fair to say that I had um, a traumatic childhood for lots of various reasons. And um, so I am a complex PTSD survivor that's a word that I find difficult as well because um I don't see myself as a survivor I it was again it was just part of my life it's it's added a richness now that I've learned to be with some of the pain of that um early on in my uh, life my eldest child um I'm very sadly we we lost her through cot death so it was 21 years old when you know, not just myself, but my whole family. And in fact, another member, uh, another family member also had a cot death. So we had to, you know, it's a very early part of an adult life to lose a child. Yeah. Um, so that was something I became very, um, I suppose uh, quite early on is why do, uh, a book I read years ago, why do bad things happen to good people? And I've sort of been like, hmm, because of course one, can easily take these things personally but I've also been very curious about how people connect and interconnect or don't deal with things and and coming from a background where there's a family difficulty um, how when something happens how people tend to break up rather than come together it can work both ways but um, I was curious as what causes the difference what were the causes of those differences um, I'm not religious in any way, shape or form, um, but I am spiritual. And I was fortunate enough to go to a wonderful um, school, a boarding school, which was a Church of England boarding school. 
from the age of seven to 18. So I went very young, which in itself has, has obviously some other things I've had to work with, but overall it was a very positive experience. So that quiet contemplative kind of existence, I learned very early on. Also those of us that have um, experienced trauma early in our lives often I've noticed can be um, quite introverted, well I'm introverted anyway. So that imaginal sort of world that I learned to escape into as a way of you know, surviving things that were happening around me, I would just dis disappear into fantasy worlds and, and whatever. So I naturally learned to have that, in a bit, that ability to kind of to, to be quiet within myself. That was then as an avoidance rather than um, to be with some of the other stuff. But um, years went by. I've always been very, very interested in alternative religions. I shared with you, I've studied some Sufism. I've studied Buddhism. Um, I all sorts of things. I've been very interested um, about the, the different wisdoms. And when I was in, I was probably about 25 when I joined the Scientific and Medical Network, which is talk about bridges this is an organization that's been a major major bridge um in my life but also between the the the, the esoteric world and the scientific mm. world because they were seen for many years as two different things and now of course with the neuroscience and the cat scan and and, and various bits we can see that that all comes together and, and your work with the with the equine therapy is really one of the best examples of that isn't it because it does yes. have this magic to it and yet so we're dealing with these two worlds, yeah, yeah. A probably an interesting story and relevant story that it influences is my, my great uncle is a chap called um, Godfrey Hansfield, and um, he developed the, and got a Nobel Prize and a knighthood for developing the first CAT scan. Wow. And of course, um, there's, there's a lot, he, it was him and another person. He was dyslexic. He had no educational background. I think he was the first, and he got a Nobel Prize for medicine. So he, he didn't, he was not an academic. He didn't, he was one of the earliest or first that in medicine to have, who did not have a medical background or university background. He was an inventor. He was working for EMI at the time. Um, but um, sort of, it, you know, and I'm severely dyslexic and had learning difficulties as <laughs> uh, you'll sometimes, you know, even speaking was a trouble for me. I, I've, I have a, you can't hear it now many people, but to communicate verbally is really hard for me because of my, um, part of my dyslexic picture. Um, and so there were lots of things in my life that have kind of come together and meetings of people and meeting of minds. Um, probably another influence in my own trauma history. And then also another thing that I really remember as a child of living in Singapore was my parents were quite confused about how I could understand the Buddhist monks that used to come past our garden and the Gakali soldiers. And I could communicate absolutely perfectly and i knew what people were saying even though i can't speak lang other languages because you grew up in a military family i grew up in a military family and we were posted all over the world um in southeast asia and various places and, so you, and had so that, you had that sensitivity as a child where you could you could read yeah thoughts in a sense you you, you were working at a, a 
outside of the usual linear I was certainly realm from yeah. a very early age. Yeah, and very lucky with my parents who are sort of like, oh, that's charming, you know, <laughs> <laughs> rather than anything else. There was no schools either because we were one of the last families to leave Singapore. So I missed my early years education, um, which was, you know, fantastic. My, my education was fabulous because I had all these other experiences. Um, I remember one day we were watching some Buddhist monks doing the the the, um, the sort of martial arts things of lying on beds of knives and on on spears and things and we're great my the adults around me I, I don't remember them quite saying this but they're kind of like how do they do it and I went oh it's very easy look he just steps out of his body and he stands over there <laughs> <laughs> and <Wow. laughs> things like that, which when I look back on, I'm like, oh, what is all, you know. You it's, had this, and actually, perhaps because you weren't subjected to our school system. Yeah. You didn't get that shut down. Yeah. As, as, as rapidly and as effectively as, as the system shuts young minds down. Yeah. <laughs> who, are, who have to go through the whole standard dose, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I did get shut down. I got yeah. severely shut down. But yeah. Luckily, I had enough of the blueprint and the sensitivity and awareness and connection, which I actually kept in secret for many years and just sort of went off into these other dimensions of work and spiritual practices because I was so fascinated. But predominantly, I mean, in my early 20s, I was hanging out with this amazing group of scientists who knew uh, uh, my uncle Godfrey, knew about the technology of the CAT scan. And these were people, the heads of departments of neuroscience, neu neurology, psychology, um, psychiatry, who in themselves were having to keep themselves fairly well hidden and protected because in those days it was still too early to see the con connection to, or to be accepted those connections between the scientific and the esoteric. How extraordinary. Mm. <laughs> Sounds oh. like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or some sort of, <laughs> some sort of plot for a film, these kind of yeah, it was I, it, double lives of scientists who were dabbling in these yeah experiments with consciousness in, out in the, by night and by yeah. day in the lab. They were in the lab in conferences. They were yeah. mindful. It wasn't they. You know, it was only about ten years after that that they started to be much more public. And um, one of the great names in bringing all of this together, who's still who's still chair, is David Lorimer. Who is a fantastic person who I, you know, I still am very part of listening and working and getting as many lectures as I can under my belt mm. about this, this amalgamation of these two worlds. Because, of course, when you think about it, you can't separate these two worlds. They, you know, if somebody's experiencing something, how you interpret it is the issue. But when science starts making sense of some of these things that were seen as, you know, airy fairy mumbo jumbo then of course suddenly it's not airy fairy mumbo jumbo and I think that's brought a lot of our awareness around co what consciousness is and it's obviously a huge debate still and then how do we you know understand consciousness in the in the in the live, lived experience of life when there are um you know some terrible things happening wars violence of you know Degrade slavery, all sorts of things that are happening, and how how do we make sense of the to me unfathomable? I cannot fit in my head the hurt and the violence we do. It's just too big for my head. Even though I'm working pretty much every day of my life with people who have survived the most horrific survive you know stories. And and so 
what does all this have to do with horses? Well, <laughs> well, 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 yes. One of the things that we find hardest to be with ourselves in, um, in a way is especially when there is trauma. And by the way, trauma doesn't have to be a horrific you know, car yeah. accident or anything. It can be of just not being able to make sense of the society or that we live in or that we just feel we don't fit in some way or we've been very successful in life and yet we feel miserable what you know you know i i speak to a lot i do a lot of work with executives and and senior leaders in industry and they are very successfully financially yeah. in life yet they're missing some parts yeah. that just doesn't well, mean and maybe maybe they had to kill that part to be successful <laughs> yes i know i i killed a few parts along the way and i'd spent last few years retrieving some of them or at least trying well, <laughs> not that i was ever that successful <laughs> well measure success what what is you know yeah, is, what, what is success matt you and i were talking earlier we're both happy we're both functioning we do you know we've had backgrounds that have been you know we've had to deal with it with psychological depression and all sorts of things yet we're happy and living a full and wholesome life to me that is success you know we're, we're that, that and for many people that seems unattainable mm. um so you know success is not just about you know a material we know we know that money does not make you happy but yet the so one of the main things is then and you you hit the nail right on the head early on in life something because we're born we're mammals we're born to be in connection with others we're born yeah. to be part of a tribe we're born to be connected and if we look at the um the wonderful work of stephen porges polyvagal theory you know again since that's come online and we're really aware of that and from the neural neural imaging that we get from fmris and the work that my great uncle first was able to really start as seeing what happens to the brain neurology and the neural systems in the body um then we can go ah oh, this is what distress looks like this is what a connected brain looks like a functioning brain looks like so um what was now very clear is that when children grow up in dis dysfunctional environments whether explicit violence emotional psychological or physical or in societies that are very repressed or cultures perhaps like education that doesn't actually attune to their specific needs i have a daughter that's um that we've only just realized at the age of 21 that is uh, autistic, high functioning mm. autistic. Wow. And as we look back on her education system, and she was very fortunate to have quite progressive education system in many ways, still the education system hurt her. And because it, it just didn't, under, we didn't understand, it didn't understand that for her neurodiversity, and, and many of us are very, you know, one education system does not fit all. So it can be something as simple as edu education system that, that might cause us not, not necessarily the bullying or anything else that's gone along. So it doesn't have to be explicit, but in some way, as young people, particularly in the early years of our life, if we don't know how to be self-soothed, content, and the ventral vagal system, or the people around us are not in ventral vagal, that, that kind of oh, kind of state, that if something goes wrong, that's sad, that's bad, whatever, and this is how we repair. 
Yeah. And we learn these as children and that we learn from our caregivers and from the society we're around. And many of us are not learning that more and more. Um, and in the past, many of us have not grown up in environments where there is. And as you, as you say, it can be so subtle because it can happen in a, in a, in a home that looks outwardly completely normal and yes. content well off perhaps yeah can from an out from from the outside it all looks perfectly fine but if you're not getting that attunement and you're not learning how to regulate because your mother is very anxious or your mother is under stress or your father has problems it, it can be almost invisible to the outside world yet it can have a very profound impact yeah. on your later yeah ability to weather life's Storms. absolutely yeah and usually in those backgrounds um because it's never talked about it's just lived with yeah it just hardwires into our system and it's not yeah. even realized that there's anything unusual about it yes <laughs> I mean, I, yes i i would really just I'm totally really normal in you know 1970s england or whatever yeah hey right so so yeah i i yeah i can relate to that yeah, I was probably, you know, it was in my early 20s that I realized that all families didn't shout and, sh you know, get violent with each other. I, I just thought that's what all families did. <laughs> um, you know, we were a boisterous family, so it wasn't all bad, but it, there were times when it certainly was outside the realms of okay um, yeah. for various reasons or another. But, um, but yeah, you, you, if that's all you know, of course that's what you think. And we, we expect people to be able to behave when actually their fundamental core programming is norms that are dysfunctional and they don't know until they know. So yeah. it's, it's part of that process. Now, as we start to, um, and the core piece of that, not only is it in um, habitual behaviors, cause that's all we've learned. And even if we as adults know differently, that younger part may still have the heart, you know, the, the core wire, the core processes yeah. in the, in the system is still there. So that when you meet a difficult situation as an adult, you go to the default setting. Yeah. I, and I, that's what acts out, not the rational. I can see that in myself. I mean, it happened to me a few days ago where something at work, I didn't feel like I performed very well, or I didn't feel, but I felt perhaps like my superiors in, I use quote marks. Yeah. <laughs> but my manage, management didn't necessarily think I'd perform that well. And it, really sort of set me into a kind of not in it's not a spin it's very it's almost like um freeze it's like a, i get very like ruminative and stuck and quiet and it's and my partner genevieve can see it it's like a switch has gone and she's like you okay and it's i have to sort of shake myself out of it and in the past that could have gone on for days or even weeks yeah. or yeah. months even in a bad case now I can be like, oh, wow, like I need to just kind of almost knock my head and I'm back. Yeah. But that's because I've now got an awareness of it. But if you yeah. don't have an awareness, you're completely at the mercy of that patterning. Yeah. And that's where the horses come in. <laughs> it, it is exactly where the horses come in. And once you are aware, awareness is, is pretty much 50% of the game, you know, yeah. 50% of the process. So, and I'm sure, Matt, your developing that awareness was not an easy journey, was it? No. Well, it was only because I'd hit the wall a number of times and had, you know, such severe depression that I'd had to take time off work and I just was unable to function. 
yeah. but I realized something was not right, that this was not normal, that this was a, a problem. And that was when I became much more aware of, in fact, it was writing the book and I started reading about attachment and the yep. importance of early life attachment and attunement that I thought, oh, I know that I had traumas in my first few months. My dad had an accident. So my mother was very uh, concerned with that when I was very small and uh, that there was a lot of disruption in my very early life, even my birth. I mean, you know, being born, you know, put in an incubator, all of this stuff. I, I suddenly realized, wow, like no wonder I had depression because I didn't have that attunement or I had the disruption in my early attachment that made me much more vulnerable yeah. to, I didn't have that ability you just described to kind of quickly rebalance and quickly regain my equilibrium. Like yeah. if I was knocked off equilibrium, I could just keep, I could stay knocked off. I yeah. didn't, like, it, was a, it was like putting a ship back up. It wasn't a simple, yeah. I didn't yeah. just spring back up. It was a huge yeah. operation to kind of recover. And that's exactly the issue. So for those of us that don't have a good um, self-soothing, is, is the kind of the, the more um, non-scientific word, but what we say, the ventral vagal, um, disruption really and the ability you've used that phrase ventral vagal a couple yeah. of times what, what, so let me uh, let me explain that because i was about to go and then i will get to the point of yeah. white horses all right because <laughs> they are part of the, this is the build-up we need we need the build-up before yeah. we, we hit there. the drum roll <laughs> so the nervous system is built of the three main parts we've got the um the subsuit the part that can is you know rest and digest when we're resting and digesting, <laughs> when we're stressed, do we want to eat? No. When we're stressed, can we rest? No. Okay, so the rest and digest is when we talk about the system is in uh, parasympathetic nervous system state. We're in this lovely kind of, ah, oh, it's the breathe out, relax state, okay? And that is the optimum state for learning, for doing life, and for being just in life. And when we're living our life, even tricky moments, but when, when we're living our life from that ventral vagal state, then the chemicals that we're dealing with in our system are, um, are sorry, I have this, uh, this part of my, uh, <laughs> I get these moment blanks, just give me a second. I can see the word, but I can't find it, it will come. So when we're doing life, we are producing endorphins and dopamine. And when we are um, in our ventral vagal system, we're producing opiates and oxytocin. Okay, and that's a lovely chemical mix. It right? sounds great already. I'm. I mean, <laughs> thinking about it, it's cheering me up. These drugs, when we can be in that natural high state, but very functional state. We, you know, we talk about this state to get sportsmen and people in, you know, that high functioning state. That is that state and we need to be learning to live like that more and more but many of us don't know how to be in that state because that's yeah. been compromised early on in life or we've learned behaviors that are not conducive to that state so what we do is we live in the up uh, one of two and often mixing into both two other states one is the sympathetic nervous system state which is the flight and fight okay now a lot of us are living in flight flight and living life okay yeah and that's the, you know, when, when somebody says something and I push back and I'm, you know, agitated back and, you know, that's yeah. not that our state. And then there's another state. If, that, that was me at work for most of the last 20 years. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's fight flight. 
Yeah. And then what happens when we can't fight flight, and we will have learned this probably quite early on in life, because as children, we can't fight and we can't flight. We have to sit in that classroom and listen to that teacher telling us off for something that we didn't do. Yeah. Or we have to sit with the parents doing what Yeah, the parent. Who's, yeah. yeah. You can't fight flight. So the only other way we can go to is this third deeper state, which is called the dorsal vagal which is when you've got the sympathetic fight and flight energy. So you've got your foot slammed hard on the accelerator. And then we sink into this other place. And you talked about that word of freeze, that you feel frozen and you can't think and you can't do anything. And you've yeah, just... you, it's, it, you're, it's like there's no creativity. I, lo I, I kind of, it's literally like a switch. It's like, uh, like I've gone into some space yeah. with no resources. Yeah. Well, and, and yet I'm very, I can't sleep either, which yeah. is probably the foot on the accelerator part. So that's actually the state that you're talking about. And you, yes, so you've got the nervous system, the central uh, sympathetic nervous system foot full on on the brake and then the handbrake on at the same time. <laughs> and you're trying to live life with both in place. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a recipe for success in, on any front. Yeah. Well, you'll be amazed, I would say huge numbers of our populations are living in that state and when you live in either one of those states or those for those of us that are really that's where depression is in that dorsal vagal you're producing cortisol and you're producing um cortisol and adrenaline and when you mix those two with living life you with dopamine well just go and drink some bleach it'll be healthier for you yeah that's <laughs> what i tell my students and, and, my and i can feel it i can actually feel like something in my body is not right when i'm yeah. like that and, and and before i would never have had that awareness but at least now i can see it and i'm fortunate enough to be living with someone who is a clinical psychologist who yeah. says ah hello <laughs> and can kind of almost bring me back into the bring world. you back again and, and yeah. a lot of my life and that's yeah. why I could go into that state and stay in it for months. Well, yeah. the reason why it's so hard um, initially to kind of come out of these states, especially if you've lived with them a long time, and anyone who's had complex PTSDs when they're much more in those states, um, or so you could have just a, you know, the one thing that is easy to treat is somebody who's had a healthy background in life or healthy enough, just only needs to be about 30 to 40%, by the way, it doesn't need to be perfect more than that but if there's been enough secure attachment in the system yeah. then you're not if you have a car accident that's you know a major disaster you're more likely to recover very quickly but those of us who have had um less you know not enough secure attachment and, and you know that that ventral vagal state as, ch as young people then more likely the rates of complex ptsd will come about and we don't have that ability to do that um, resourcing state, that hard state, because we don't know how to do it. Yeah. It's not in our system, so it's not available to us. And that's why it's so hard in that tra treating trauma when it's got to that state or depression or behavior modifications, because you're actually having to develop a whole new neurology in yeah. your brain system. Now, let's end <laughs> state left. <laughs> let's bring those horses in. I, I love this conversation because I thought we'd be talking about the horses for a few minutes and then move, but I, I love the build up because actually now we've got the problem and now it makes sense. Yeah. The way that it wouldn't have done if we just plunged straight into it. I'm going to talk about my experiences of equine therapy in a few minutes. In a few minutes. Yeah. That would be a nice yeah, example. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. That will really illustrate what I'm talking about then. 
So one of the, what happens, um, especially because where, when we work with this work, you know, the, the training that I don't, as I say, we, you've mentioned we train at, at uh, degree and master's level. Um, and I think what I'm so proud of is that we are working with both horses and studying the research of what it's like for horses to be in this work and what sort of horses are suitable for this work and human psychology, welfare and, and ethology, etc. Now, because all mammals have um, mirror neurons and how we do mirror neurons is um, in, in mammal, mammalian species, when, um, we, we, when, when somebody comes up and you're feeling wretched and goes, would you like a cup of tea? Is there anything I can do? And you, somebody senses that you're in that, that like Genevieve did. Mm. What she in fact did was she used her ventral vagal system to get yours to switch back on again. Because yours had run out of the room at that moment. You had no ventral vagal. Yeah, yeah. It just disappeared and you went back to that default place. And now you've got ability for it to come back in again quite quickly with a little prompting. Yeah. That's what she did. For you to learn, for your brain neurology to learn to do that as efficiently as it is doing these days, that would have taken a process. And what we're doing, particularly on the research, is to understand what can help people to do that quicker. Now, the reason why currently I understand and we're researching this, any claims otherwise, is not, there's no research proven this, but we are we're leading in the research around this. Um, there are a couple of other studies that are talking about the oxytocin levels increase when around horses, etc. So what happens is if I'm feeling anxious or I'm processing something and some other being who is in a very calm state, mammalian being comes in, it's like just these arms of oxytocin and um, opiates just come in around you and you can just resonate with. We know that if if somebody comes into a crowd and starts activating the energy of that crowd, the crowd will go very, with it very quickly. And we know that um, if something, that crowd is activated and somebody comes in with a calm presence, a calm leadership presence, the calmness will come back into the room. So we can, we, we resonate off each other in terms of those levels yeah. of states. We're like tuning forks, aren't we? We're like tuning yeah. forks and, it, and, a, and a particular potency of a tuning force can affect either negatively or positively so working with horses that are emotionally fit as horses is very very important this is why it's important they live as herds working with any old horse is not with the, the, the work we're understanding to date is it's not yeah. where it's at because working with a a horse that's stable and part of a an environment which is not necessarily it's natural um, state um, is not conducive necessarily. I'm not saying always, but there's, 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 we've got to understand what we're working with. We need a horse's nervous system, like a therapist's nervous system, a good therapist, because sadly some therapists we're not so good at regulating. <laughs> and, you know, we well, have I'll say things. the same. I mean, so many therapists, I mean, I, and I've seen a lot and <laughs> been around this world a lot, are, are, drawn to therapy because of their own unprocessed wounds yeah. but then they they're in some sort of program or modality that hasn't actually addressed those wounds yeah and, and i used to say to people i always used to say with friends you know oh you should see someone i've had lots of therapy and it's been helpful 
but now I'm like, well, where do I send people? Because I, I don't have that many go-tos. Not, mm. you know, I'm, I mean, there's some great therapists out there, but you have to be with the right therapist and mm. discerning about it as well. I really believe that. And, and I, I, Luckily, I mean, that's a whole other podcast we can record. Yeah, it is. And just <laughs> on a positive note, there is a lot more training available now for what we call trauma-informed therapists. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this last 15, 20 years has been pretty dearth. <laughs> it's been yeah. pretty yeah. it's been pretty pretty difficult. Um we're, you said like, something I remember when we were writing the book, and, and obviously in the book I was focused on soldiers. Mm. And you said something that about a, in the eyes of a horse, there's no judgment. Yeah. But even with a human therapist, however wonderful the therapist is, however however much work they've done on themselves, in the minds of the the client or the, the person who's seeking help, they can project that judgment in a way that, but with a horse, it doesn't happen. Or it, it's, there's a safety element that, or that there's something that the horse can provide that the human can't. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it's a really, again, knowing how nervous systems work. If you're a person that's had a, you know, a lot of problems in life and most of those problems, 99% of those problems will be caused because of humans hurting yeah. us. Um, and then being in the systems that are supposed to be there to help us, local authorities, you know, hospitals, blah, 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 therapists. Yes. Uh, then you, and, and if you're, of course, a very difficult person that's volatile and pleasant. Yeah, because you've had so much trauma. Because you're hurting, yes. Um, and, you know, the therapeutic system has said, well, you know, you can't continue therapy because you're not, you're not behaving. You're treatment resistant. <laughs> you're treatment resistant. <laughs> over and over. So, so they come to people like me, where I love a treatment resistant client. And they are not going to engage with another human being. They are just not. And especially you know, some of these military veterans are so shut down. Especially military veterans. They, yeah. they, and, and, you know, their life has, I mean, I've seen the, the pattern so many times in yeah. that the relationships have all gone, the family's gone, the friends have gone, often there's some substance yeah. involved. And this is really their last yeah, their role life, of advice, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen that so many times. And yet I've also seen the turnaround. I have yeah. seen the turnaround. Well, you, you saw it obviously with a few of the clients we yes. were working with. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I wrote, I wrote about a really extraordinary case in the, in the book. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so, you know, we can't, that's what we, that's really the crux of it. We create an environment that of course my nervous system is a major part of it, but just looking at me as a human being, I'm going to trigger them, especially a white middle-class woman. You know, it's, you know, it, it, for, for many people that's a barrier first of all you know yeah. if you're of any any ethnic and i always laugh at the word minority ethnic minority <laughs> when the world is actually majority <laughs> what is that about even our language is kind of upside down but any ethnic but my, a, a difference from from me in this country um it's immediately a barrier because there would have been a military and the shame and the anger and the rage that's all in there so my nervous system as the therapist, because I'm the one holding the system, the horse is not doing any healing. The horse is not the therapist. Let's be really clear about that. I talk, lots of people say, oh, horse, it's the horses. No, no, no. They're just being horses. Wow. Really yeah. They are not therapists. They're just doing their daily business. Yeah. Yeah. But what they do do is that they love that state of, oh, 
that ventral vagal state. And when somebody's in a ventral vagal state, it feels safe. Now, remember, these creatures are 500 million years old. Extraordinary. They are top of the list for dinner for all yeah. predators. <laughs> they know it. <laughs> and, you know, I always say to people, do not go out working with horses if you're hungry. Because they'll mm. know it. They can tell, and if you watch in life, wildlife films, animals, um, zebra, you can, they will allow lions to come to have water with them. They know the difference between a hungry lion and a lion that's gone into an activated state of predator. So they're very, very attuned, these animals. They're very ancient and they're very attuned. So by then just going where there's a healthy herd, emotionally fit herd of horses doing their thing. And we start, and in nature, by the way, again, many, many PTSD clients there, that if you think about the sympathetic nervous state, um, it just doesn't like to sit there quite in calmly in a room being very polite and, you know, it wants to go fly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we need space to hold that violated energy, that angry energy. Yeah, and the earth is there, the earth. And the earth is... Supporting the whole process. And I even, when I was thinking about, I mean, if I was to rewrite the book, which obviously every time I've ever written anything, I want to rewrite it again. Mm -hmm. But I didn't mention that. But of course, the earth is there soaking up so much of that emotion, Mm -hmm. isn't it? So it's so much... And actually, the earth holds... Yeah. There are some esoteric wisdoms that the nature thrives on. When we release our emotional distress, nature... It's like a uh, manure for nature. Wow. Um, so that's why the trees, and, and the more we hold on to all our internal violence and bitterness and everything, it damages ourselves and it damages our human species. But the more we connect with it, nature goes, ah, oh, with you, it. You know, you've just said something that's reminded me of a, something that was said at a retreat I was on a few months ago in the US. It was a gathering called Verdant World of, of people involved in, forestation projects or protecting trees and but it was a had a very spiritual element or focus and it was held by there were indigenous leaders elders holding the space and we got to a point through the process where one of the women was saying you know the origin of the climate crisis is actually unexpressed emotion and and that's so profound for me on Mm. so many levels because it's about the, the repression of so many layers of ancestral traumas going back yeah. generations. But as you say, it may actually be true in a really quite literal sense as well, that, that we need to feed the land with our own stuff almost. That's what yeah. it's, that's the ecology, the sort of spiritual bioecology that we're part of, that we've just forgotten about and used to know about maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's really does feel Matt that we as human beings have kind of gone off in a direction which we think unconsciously i don't know what the driver is but when nature actually can hold it all um i'm just very reminded when you said that as well um i think it was someone it was peter levine um who talks about it's not the incident that causes trauma it's not the incident that causes the Mm. psychological distress and the, the, the the consequential sort of symptoms that come about it's not the incident it's not what happened to us in childhood. It's the inability to express it and be with it to move and transform to a different place. 
And once we do, and you know, you know a little bit about my history. Um, I also ended up with um, in a terrible car crash years ago. Yes, yeah. Um, and my daughter had. I was on my way to my daughter, my eldest daughter, who had cancer at the time, was in hospital having uh, radiation treatments and surgery, and having already lost one child. You can imagine my nervous system was fairly chaotic. Yeah. Um, I wasn't driving when it happened, but I was a passenger. Um, but but I it took eight eight firemen two hours to cut me out, and I, oh I and I you know they they gave me half an hour to live, and I had to have major surgery and everything. Wow. And you know that day that I woke up in intensive care, um, you know on machines and and whatever, uh, I was just like, hmm. Luckily, my background, this is when I really knew my ventral vagal. I had learned to connect to my, you know, you mentioned earlier about training for these difficult times in life. Mm. I knew I was ready to deal with this because I woke up and went, and we just set up the, uh, the equine center, the, the therapy center in um, the place that you visited us. And uh, I just woke up and went, hmm, this is going to be really interesting managing a herd of horses. <laughs> when when i have just been smashed to smithereens <laughs> and it may be months before i can physically be physically normal. it actually took years to get back to some sort of physical normality so um but you know these journeys but it's by learning to be with that experience and that horror yeah. and, and I, I i'd like to maybe walk through my own experience of the equine therapy yes. Because I came for a day and I went through one of your workshops. This is some years back. Um, you also came, do you remember you came and did some work with the um, Hackney group? From oh, that's, that's right. There was a group of young people as well. I think. Yeah, I they were all um, gang, ex-gang members. That's right. Yeah. Yes, they were ex that was, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. But the one, the one where I was more of a participant in a sense was a, a, a previous workshop, I think. And I, I was working with that exercise, which is called join up, if I'm not. Yes. And that is where the, the, you, the, the horse is there. And in this case, it was Isis, who is an Arabian mare, if I recall yeah. correctly. Wow, look at me. <laughs> so the Arabian mare, Isis, a beautiful horse. And I, you're in a kind of, in a field, but with an enclosure, a wide enclosure, but it, there is an enclosure. And you, as I recall, the task is to kind of, is to make a connection with the horse without touching. And then get them to follow you. Essentially. Yes. And I found it incredibly difficult to do this. And, uh, and, and as I was trying to catch Isis's eye or somehow go near and then try to get her to follow me, and she was really indifferent in a way to my advances, if you like, it brought up a lot for me. And, and actually, I mean, it didn't take a G, I didn't really write this in the book, but my. I'd had I'd, I, part of the reason for writing the book was because I had had another kind of crash of depression, and I saw the book as an opportunity to explore the healing journey with all the caveats. And I, I the, the trigger for that depression had been a break, a relationship breakup, and that mm. I realized that I was the, the the join up approaching the horse and almost being spurned by the horse was almost bringing up my mm -hmm. feelings around the relationship, and it was. Mm -hmm. And, and yet, after a lot of rebu being rebuffed, I was at, at, towards the end of the exercise, I was able to make the join up briefly. And the horse, Isis, did follow me. I could see there was a connection that had been made at the end, which was really exciting and actually, in a sense, healing in its own way. Mm. 
but I could see in that exercise how whatever your what whatever's in you is going to come up in that space. The horse is going to bring it out of you, and not by doing anything, just as you say, just by being a horse. But you're not, and also it's like because they're so big and so strong, and they're so sort of they have this amazing presence. Mm-hmm. It's like plugging into the mains or trying to like really like a big. There's something that allows processing or, or identifying anything. And I, I often think about this in the conversations in this podcast. It's like we've got, it's like being a ship with all sorts of loose stuff on the deck. <laughs> and like normally in normal life, you can sail along and you drift and all that loose stuff just doesn't move because there's not, nothing to move it. But then when a storm comes, it all starts flying overboard. And it's, it's a little bit like that in, the, in these sessions is that anything loose starts to wobble and you sort of identify, whoa, there's some sadness coming up or some frustration or anger. And, and, and it gives you a place to work with those feelings in a very in a safe, safe way. Yeah. In a totally different way than you would be able to do if you were sitting in a therapy room for an hour, I think. Absolutely. So what was going on there for me, do you think? I mean, what would your well, reading of that be? From a, from a neuroscientific perspective, which is always interesting to understand, I think, to make sense and meaning, is what happened was, um, so the horse will only join up with us when we're back into ventral vagal. And va- when, we're, when our nervous systems have calmed down, then what happens is that we're a- able to process. And what it is, when we're distressed, we, if you notice, we can't think, we can't talk, and we can't hear so well. Because those are... <laughs> Sounds like my, an average day in the office. It sounds like a day in the office, yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah. Matt, I wonder if you're suffering from stress <laughs> at all. Just a thought. <laughs> Which, but of course, most of us are living at some sort of stress level. And it does, you know, that's why learning to be really relaxed, even in high... Oct- well, it happened to me this morning in that in the house and i got very annoyed with genevieve because i thought she'd said something completely innocent and because I, I was already somewhat stressed i totally misheard yes what she was saying and i reacted to it and i because I, I wasn't because i was already stressed i couldn't hear and i, I can absolutely so what happens yeah. is your prefrontal cortex goes offline because we <laughs> have to survive yeah you don't think about which shoes to wear you just run off yeah. prefrontal flight don't you so immediately our prefrontal cortex goes offline and actually we are in some level of dissociation now for a yeah. horse that is just that's dangerous they're not going to be they, they don't, don't, they be don't around, want to be around that yeah they don't want to be around any other mammal that's dissociated and likely to cause attraction from other predators they're not safety so they'll they'll keep their distance but what was happening for you is she was kind of kind of going mm, not sure i really you know I'm obviously don't want to anthro. I can't ever say the word, but you know the morphosize. Yeah, <laughs> but what I what's happening in her nervous system is this is not this person is not safe to be. They're not feeling safe in their own body. Never mind. Yeah. They're not online, as I say. They, you know the nervous system, the ventral vagal is not present in them. There's no way I'm going near them. And you you use the term congruent. It's congruent, yes. It's that congruency. Am I thinking my feeling and feeling my thinking? Damasio talks about we are not machines that think. We are, we are human beings or, um, you know, yeah, beings that feel. And then we think about our feeling. Now, many of us have moved just into thinking worlds. But actually, that's a, an incongruent, disconnected state because we are not got any other awareness. And therefore we act, our nervous systems are acting out one way and our thinking is acting out another way. And we're thinking, well, why is that person not connecting with us, getting upset and everything? When actually 
we're not connecting with you because you're not a homemate because you're, yeah. you know, because my nervous system goes, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you're not congruent. You yeah. say one thing, but you're, really body here, you're, saying, you're not really here in the, in the truest sense, in the truest sense, we're not present. Yeah. So that's what's happening. So, so, and then as that process is unfolding, her nervous system is going, Mm-mm, and yours is going, but why not? Blah, blah, blah. And all this thing. Making it coming. worse. Make it worse yeah. in a way, but that's, you can't, there's no other way through it. It's almost, and, but you're having to be with all of those emotions. Yeah. And a good facilitator will just help you stay with it or just ask a pertinent question. Just very quietly. We don't often say very much or do very much, as you notice. We just, we're just kind of just fine tuning and just keeping you in the process enough so that eventually you go, oh, I see now that makes sense. And then the prefrontal cortex comes online and then the horse goes, oh, well, now you're now you're back. You look quite interesting. Now you're online. I actually want to be with you because you're safe, because you're, you're present. So horses and actually it's the same exactly for humans. We will not connect to other humans um, or we tolerate, but we're tolerating them at a distance when they're in that state. Well, it, 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 I, I can't help but say that it makes me think of dating. <laughs> you were talking about, you know, you can sense the hungry kind of predator versus somebody who's at ease with themselves and yeah. doesn't need anything. And, and, and um, yes, that's that, relationship. Yeah, yeah, quite a clear parallel. And it, it is all about relationship. And yeah. at the end of that exercise, I remember I, we had to write down what was coming to us didn't we and i remember yeah. because there's that, that's part of the integration there is some writing and drawing yeah, yeah, and, so on. Yeah. And, and reflection and allowing yeah. the processing to happen in order for you to go oh yeah. how interesting <laughs> and i remember it came to me time to let go time to let go and it was let go of the past and all this relationship and of all the baggage that i kind of saddled yeah. myself with and i remember that insight coming through and it it was powerful because, and I, I was, there were tears as well. I, there was a lot of emotion that came up, but it was connecting with that feeling. And, and again, not to sort of knock, I mean, well, you know, I could sit there as I did with a therapist talking about rationalizing and trying to change my thoughts about it, but it's completely futile when, when that feeling has to come out, it has, it has to, to be, be embodied. you said it from the very beginning, you know, it's being able to go and sit with those feelings mm. is the only way through them and to find the gifts on the other side. And there was another beautiful part of that exercise. No, I'm going to just hold oh. you. To oh, no, go on. Sorry, okay, you pause no, me. Because it was such a powerful moment that you just sort of, when I, when I recognize those words of let go. Yeah. Times that go, I noticed my body really relax and the whole energy of our conversation, everything we all did, we all, both of us, and I'm imagining anyone else listening went into a, Oh. <sighs> that's uh, that's the ventral vagal system that's the okay i'm back home now and that yeah it's and fine the work is to really notice those moments of connection ah. more than we notice the disconnection because we always notice the disconnection but actually the change happens when we notice and spend time and honor the moment of connection because when we get one moment of connection and really honor it then we can build more and more and more and only focus on the moments of connection and the moments of disconnection hmm, interesting what can i learn from that yeah yeah and that's how we get that change over and that's yeah. when you actually feel the neural activity in your brain some people talk about they can feel things happening in their brain and it almost hurts I can feel, I, I can definitely sense. If I'm awake enough to sort of 
not go into it. I can feel when I'm jangling. I can really feel it. And it, it's so useful for this, this conversation in a way is really, it's almost like a five year follow-up from that session <laughs> for me in a it sense. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Teaching yeah. me how much I've learned since then and yeah. also reminding me of these principles. And, and, and the other wonderful part of that work we did that day was, is it the vision of the future or the sacred, uh, what do you call it, where you draw in a circle? Kathleen Barry Ingram, who is one of my greatest mentors and teachers and friend, and she's a grandmother to my children. I, I just hold her very in such high esteem as one of we. I think she, along with two other women called um, Anne Alden and um, sorry, the other one's gone from my mind. But Kathleen Barry is three grandmothers of this work. Yeah, she coined the work the name um, the Sacred Place of Possibility. That's it. Yeah, because from this place new alternatives other options are available because when you got to that moment on oh, now it's time to let go suddenly there's space for so much more isn't there well i remember i drew uh, a ship sailing a sort of sailing type ship like a an old-fashioned style ship with the two figures like a, in partnership on the deck steering the ship and of course now fast forward and i i have a wonderful relationship with genevieve and we are very much sailing a ship in the sense in that we're both involved in this kind of work in our different ways. That's her, her day job in a sense and my, my hobby, <laughs> but nonetheless, we are very much, I can see that vision realized now. And that was a beautiful way to, yeah. it, it's beautiful to reflect on the power of that day in a sense and, and how much came out of it and how yeah. much I learned. And, and it was wonderful as well to feel that the work is now, being shared so much more widely. Obviously, I wrote about it and I, I was pleased to be able to profile what you were doing, but it's so wonderful to hear now that you are, I mean, what we know is true, we know is true, but you need to kind of build up the academic left, left brain yeah. methodology to get it through all the hoops that it needs to, to become more widely available. And you're really doing that. It's extraordinary how much you've achieved since then. And wonderful to feel like, as you build that bridge, more people will be able to walk across it and have those, those real shifts, not just, not just feeling a bit better and coping a bit better. And it was Hugh Forsyth, the veteran the, yeah. who I wrote about in Aftershock, who talked about that. He said it very well. He said, it's not just coping, it's, it's really living. And, it's and that's really what he really, he came back to life. He was in many ways resurrected and, and anyone can read about his story in the book, but but it is such still, a big, I mean, do you know he's a grandfather now? Wow, amazing. Full, he's full go all the time when I connect to him. Yeah. He's got something, he's just living life. And there was a man that when we first met him, he had started planning to become a, he's so recluse and he thought there's no point in even ever trying to get a job or do anything again. You know, he trained with us and became a therapist himself. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. phenomenal yeah so i saw i saw the power of it for many people apart apart from just my own taste i did see it and it's extraordinary work mm. i mean is there any as we come to the end of the hour son mm. i mean is there any other final thing you'd like to emphasize or add i mean i feel like we we almost came to the horses at the very end <laughs> but but it was such a rich discussion because mm. it then all made sense mm. it, i remember hugh once saying i thought that equine therapy was just walking into a field and feeding a horse a few apples kind of like a you know like a trip to the farm to feel better but it's obviously so much more profound than that 
Yeah. I wonder if there's anything else that you, you'd like people to sort of a thought to leave people with on, on, on your well, work. Yes. And I think you have already named it. And I, again, want to, well, that point about focusing on the things that work and the moments of connection, that's the way through, you know, when we're talking about being in Hades, we're needing the life, you know, following those lifeline ropes out. After we're in Hades, we can't see the rope, the, the, the guide rope out. That's the definition of Hades, right? Yeah, <laughs> see a guide rope, it'll be aware it's, it's going to be all right. There may be many, but we can't see them, yeah. <laughs> and there always are many of them. There course. are, there always see. are. Yeah. yeah, so what you said there really was, um, was really speaking to that was that, um, you did that drawing and you that was from your subconscious, you you had no idea what you were going to you were going to draw that a few moments until that moment. <laughs> And I, we said, just remember the session, remember, focus instead. What was the thing you were taking away? And we, we, that's why we encourage people to draw. We're not art mm. therapists. But if you write it, then you're using your, uh, your left brain. But when you use a drawing, then you're using that much more, uh, that creative, unconscious, imaginative side. And it came up with this image of you sailing a ship with somebody else. Mm. And what was so powerful, and I, you know, I, Shane Hughes not here because we probably could all sit with our man, our Mandelas from that day. Yeah. And go, oh my God! Look what we drew, and look where we are now. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of the greatest joys about this work. It is such. If you're having to go, to, if you're in Hades, and then you have to kind of go in and do some work in Hades. I mean, that's double hellhole, isn't it? Yeah. But if you're doing it in the company of horses, and for many people, they are so frightened, they are so angry, they are so helpless and hopeless. But I always say to people, when you finish your work with us, you'll get a sense of that was fun, in a way. Yeah. Even though we're in Hades, it, it was okay. And in fact, there's, there was this serene wonderfulness because you found a guide rope. Yeah. It may, we may let go of it from time to time, subsequently but that kind of that, that those images and people come and do them and just in a one-day experience how that can change somebody's life so much when done correctly by the way because there's a lot of people in this field who are not trained and mm. you know it requires mm. a very specific training um and as i mentioned earlier i'm part of a group of people setting up a register nationally now for yeah. qualified people in this work because the welfare of the horses and the welfare of the humans and the welfare of us as therapists is yeah. really important. Yeah. But that, yeah, I'd say your image of the, of the two people on the boats navigating calm seas and rough seas, that says it all for me. Hmm. And that's what the horses help us find in ourselves. And where can people find out more about your work? What's the best website to find you on? Oh, well, I've got, there's two websites that are really key. Well, there's there's three, but there's the two that I'm going to mention is the Dare to Live website. And please, people fund Dare to Live. That's the Dare to Live Trust. (laughs) We work with, whether we work with all first responders, we work with ex-gang members, we work specifically now moving into working with um, uh, health carers, or anyone who volunteers on frontline services or especially with the COVID where a lot of people are suffering some mental health out of that, where they've been working extreme hours and seeing a lot. We run programs for the community. So all the work and, that I've done goes, is all back into, this, into the community. So, um, so that's 
if we offer a lot of community program programs for anyone with any sort of trauma um, background and or stress background by the way and then um, I obviously run a training company um, which is the iFilm method qualifications training and we qualify therapists um, we qualify horse um, professionals we qualify teachers GPs doctors psychiatrists we've had on board um, we even had a neuroscience scientists come and train with us to do, not because they wanted to be a therapist they wanted to come and uh, learn more about the 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 the, uh, the embodied experience of neuroscience as it were um, so there's, there's those two organizations and then we do some work there's another company we do some work with executives and leadership but um, yeah so ifeelmethod.com or the one that is re I'd really like to plug is the Dare to Live Trust. <laughs> where we're actually doing our greatest, you know, that's where it, that's the greatest pleasure, where we bring all our knowledge as a shared group of professionals and give back to the community. Wonderful. Well, I'm sure people will be rushing to check that those sites out now. Son, I'm so glad we've had this chance to reconnect, revisit my own experience and hear such a clear and eloquent explanation of the, the theory and practice of equine therapy and i wish you well with the next steps in your own journey thank you so much and i'd like to thank you matt for pioneering and talking and you know promoting organizations and people like myself where we're doing this kind of fringy work so thank you for your passion <laughs> well that, that's my motto from the margins to the mainstream so oh fab yeah, onwards. <laughs> onwards, onwards and upwards <laughs> thank you matt Thanks for listening. The Matthew Green podcast was produced by me, Tarn Rogers-Johns, for Emerge. Emerge is a media platform and movement exploring the emerging new narratives of our time. Visit us at www.whatisemerging.com.